Welcome back to another World Audiobooks. So excited to have you guys here. We have wrapped up the story of Emma uh, last uh, week with an awesome final chapter there, finale. And now we get to start a brand new audiobook. And I'm so excited to be presenting to you The Gods of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This is book two in the Barsoom series. If you've been a longtime listener, you know that we recently, not recently, I guess it's been probably a year at least uh, since we did A Princess of Mars and now we're coming into book two. So if you haven't listened to A Princess of Mars, I'd say go check that out. You can go into the backlist of the podcast and you can listen to all those episodes and uh, get caught up on the story of John Carter. Very exciting, good stuff. Won't give any spoilers here, but uh, I'd say go listen to that one before you start this one. If you haven't, uh, I think you'll really enjoy it and then you'll be able to enjoy this one even more. So, or you can go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com and there's a button to purchase uh, the, the full audiobooks if you want to do that is a great way to support the podcast or you can go to another world audiobooks and you can actually request the free audiobook too so uh, if you want to do that you can also get the the full version of the audiobook just to listen to it uh, without all the individual episodes and then that will get you caught up on the story as we jump in to the second book in the barsoom series i really love these i think they're a lot of fun there's good adventure romance type uh, novels and uh, they're a lot of fun to narrate too so hope you guys enjoy it So yeah, let's get into it. Without further ado, I give you The Gods of Mars. The Gods of Mars Written by Edgar Rice Burroughs Narrated by Brady Smith Forward Twelve years had passed since I laid the body of my great-uncle, Captain John Carter of Virginia, away from the sight of men in that strange mausoleum in the old cemetery at Richmond. Often had I pondered on the odd instructions he had left me governing the construction of his mighty tomb, and especially those parts which directed that he be laid in an open casket, and that the ponderous mechanism which controlled the bolts of the vault's huge door be accessible only from the inside. Twelve years had passed since I had read the remarkable manuscript of this remarkable man, this man who remembered no childhood and could not even offer a vague guess as to his age, who was always young and yet who had dandled my grandfather's great-grandfather upon his knee, this man who had spent ten years upon the planet Mars, who had fought for the green men of Barsoom and fought against them, who had fought for and against the red men and who had won the ever-beautiful Dejah Thoris, princess of Helium, for his wife, and for nearly ten years had been a prince of the house of Tardos Moors, Jeddak of Helium. Twelve years had passed since his body had been found upon the bluff before his cottage, overlooking the Hudson, and oft-times during these long years I had wondered if John Carter were really dead, or if he again roamed the dead sea bottoms of that dying planet. If he had returned to Barsoom to find that he had opened the frowning portals of the mighty atmosphere plant in time to save the countless millions who were dying of asphyxiation, on that far-gone day that had seen him hurtled ruthlessly through forty-eight million miles of space back to Earth once more. I had wondered if he had found his black-haired princess and the slender son he had dreamed was with her in the royal gardens of Tardos Moors, awaiting his return. Or had he found that he had been too late, and thus gone back to a living death upon a dead world? Or was he really dead after all, never to return either to his mother Earth or his beloved Mars? Thus was I lost in useless speculation one sultry August evening when old Ben, my body servant, handed me a telegram. Tearing it open, I read, 
Meet me tomorrow, Hotel Raleigh, Richmond. John Carter. Early the next morning, I took the first train for Richmond, and within two hours was being ushered into the room, occupied by John Carter. As I entered, he rose to greet me, his old-time cordial smile of welcome lighting his handsome face. Apparently, he had not aged a minute, but was still the straight, clean-limbed fighting man of thirty. His keen gray eyes were undimmed, and the only lines upon his face were the lines of iron character and determination that always had been there since I first remembered him, nearly thirty-five years before. "'Well, nephew,' he greeted me, "'do you feel as though you're seeing a ghost, or suffering from the effects of too many of Uncle Ben's juleps?' "'Juleps, I reckon,' I replied. "'For I certainly feel mighty good. "'But maybe it's just the sight of you again that affects me. "'You've been back to Mars. "'Tell me. "'And Dejah Thoris, you found her well and awaiting you.' "'Yes, I've been to Barsoom again, and... "'But it's a long story. "'But too long to tell in the limited time I have before I must return. "'I have learned the secret, nephew, "'and I may traverse the trackless void in my will.' coming and going between the countless planets as I list. But my heart is always in Barsoom, and while it is there in the keeping of my Martian princess, I doubt that I shall ever again leave the dying world that is my life. I have come now because my affection for you prompted me to see you once more before you pass over forever into that other life that I shall never know, and which, though I have died thrice, and shall die again tonight as you know death, I am as unable to fathom as you are. Even the wise and mysterious therns of Barsoom, that ancient cult which for countless ages has been credited with holding the secret of life and death in their impregnable fastness upon the high slopes of the mountain of Arts, are as ignorant as we. I have proved it, though I near lost my life in the doing of it. But you shall read it all in the notes I have been making during the last three months that I have been back upon earth. He patted a swelling portfolio that lay on the table at his elbow. I know that you are as interested in that you believe, and I know that the world too is interested, though they will not believe for many years. Yes, for many ages, since they cannot understand, Earthmen have not yet progressed to a point where they can comprehend the things that I have written in these notes. Give them what you wish of it, what you think will not harm them, but do not feel aggrieved if they laugh at you. That night I walked down to the cemetery with him. At the door of his vault, he turned and pressed my hand. "'Goodbye, nephew,' he said. "'I may never see you again, for I doubt that I can ever bring myself to leave my wife and boy while they live, and the span of life upon Barsoom is often more than a thousand years.' He entered the vault. The great door swung slowly to. The ponderous bolts grated into place. The lock clicked. I have never seen Captain John Carter of Virginia since." But here is the story of his return to Mars on that other occasion, as I have gleaned it from the great mass of notes which he left for me upon the table of his room in the hotel at Richmond. There is much which I have left out, much which I have not dared to tell, but you will find the story of his second search for Dejah Thoris, Princess of Helium, even more remarkable than was his first manuscript, which I gave to an unbelieving world a short time since, and through which we followed the fighting Virginian across Dead Sea Bottoms under the moons of Mars. Signed, E. R. B. Chapter 1 
The Plant Men As I stood upon the bluff before my cottage on that clear cold night in the early part of March 1886, the noble Hudson flowing like the gray and silent specter of a dead river below me, I felt again the strange compelling influence of the mighty god of war, my beloved Mars, which for ten long and lonesome years I had implored with outstretched arms to carry me back to my lost love. Not since that other March night in 1866, when I had stood without that Arizona cave in which my still and lifeless body lay wrapped in the similitude of earthly death, had I felt the irresistible attraction of the god of my profession. With arms outstretched toward the red eye of that great star, I stood praying for a return of that strange power which twice had drawn me through the immensity of space, praying as I had prayed on a thousand nights before during the long ten years that I had waited and hoped. Suddenly, a qualm of nausea swept over me, my senses swam, my knees gave beneath me, and I pitched headlong to the ground upon the very verge of the dizzy bluff. Instantly, my brain cleared, and I swept back across the threshold of my memory the vivid picture of the horrors of that ghostly Arizona cave. Again, as on that far-gone night, my muscles refused to respond to my will, and again, as though even here upon the banks of the placid Hudson, I could hear the awful moans and rustling of the fearsome thing which had lurked and threatened me from the dark recesses of the cave, I made the same mighty and superhuman effort to break the bonds of the strange anesthesia which held me, and again came the sharp click as of a sudden parting of a taut wire, and I stood naked and free beside the staring lifeless thing that had so recently pulsed with the warm red lifeblood of John Carter. With scarcely a parting glance, I turned my eyes again toward Mars, lifted my hands toward her lurid rays, and waited. Nor did I have long to wait, for scarce had I turned, ere I shot with the rapidity of thought into the awful void before me. There was the same instant of unthinkable cold and utter darkness that I had experienced twenty years before, and then I opened my eyes in another world, beneath the burning rays of a hot sun, which beat through a tiny opening in the dome of the mighty fortress in which I lay. The scene that met my eyes was so unmartian that my heart sprang to my throat as the sudden fear swept through me that I had been aimlessly tossed upon some strange planet by a cruel fate. Why not? What guide had I through the trackless wastes of interplanetary space? What assurance that I might not as well be hurtled to some far-distant star or another solar system as to Mars? I lay upon a close-cropped sward of red grass-like vegetation, and about me stretched a grove of strange and beautiful trees, covered with huge and gorgeous blossoms, and filled with brilliant voiceless birds. I call them birds since they were winged, but mortal eye ne'er rested on such odd, unearthly shapes. The vegetation was similar to that which covers the lawn of the red Martians of the great waterways, but the trees and birds were unlike anything that I had ever seen upon Mars, and then, through the further trees, I could see the most unmartian of all sights, an open sea, its blue waters shimmering beneath the brazen sun. As I rose to investigate further, I experienced the same ridiculous catastrophe that had met my first attempts to walk under Martian conditions. The lesser attraction to this smaller planet, and the reduced air pressure of its greatly rarefied atmosphere— afforded so little resistance to my earthly muscles that the extraordinary exertion of the mere act of rising sent me several feet into the air 
and precipitated me upon my face in the soft and brilliant grass of this strange world. This experience, however, gave me some slightly increased assurance that, after all, I might indeed be in some, to me, unknown corner of Mars, and this was very possible, since during my ten years of residence upon the planet, I had explored but a comparatively tiny area of its vast expanse. I arose again, laughing at my forgetfulness, and soon had mastered once more the art of attuning my earthly sinews to these changed conditions. As I walked slowly down the imperceptible slope toward the sea, I could not help but note the park-like appearance of the sward and trees. The grass was as close-cropped and carpet-like as some old English lawn, and the trees themselves showed evidence of careful pruning to a uniform height of about fifteen feet from the ground, so that as one turned his glance in any direction, the forest had the appearance at a little distance of a vast, high-ceiling chamber. All these evidences of careful and systematic cultivation convinced me that I had been fortunate enough to make my entry into Mars on this second occasion, through the domain of a civilized people, and that, when I should find them, I would be accorded the courtesy and protection that my rank as a prince of the house of Tardos Moors entitled me to. The trees of the forest attracted my deep admiration as I proceeded towards the sea. Their great stems, some of them fully a hundred feet in diameter, attested their prodigious height, which I could only guess at, since at no point could I penetrate their dense foliage above me to more than sixty or eighty feet. As far aloft as I could see, the stems and branches and twigs were as smooth and highly polished as the newest of American-made pianos. The wood of some of the trees was as black as ebony, while their nearest neighbors might perhaps gleam in the subdued light of the forest as clear and white as the finest china, or again, they were azure, scarlet, yellow, or deepest purple. And in the same way was the foliage as gay and variegated as the stems, while the blooms that clustered thick upon them may not be described in an earthly tongue, and indeed might challenge the language of the gods. As I neared the confines of the forest, I beheld before me, and between the grove and the open sea, a broad expanse of meadowland, and as I was about to emerge from the shadow of the trees, a sight met my eyes that banished all romantic and poetic reflection upon the beauties of the strange landscape. To my left, the sea extended as far as the eye could reach, before me only a vague dim line indicated its further shore, while at my right a mighty river, broad, placid, and majestic, flowed between scarlet banks to empty into the quiet sea before me. At a little distance up the river rose mighty perpendicular bluffs, from the very base of which the great river seemed to rise. But it was not these inspiring and magnificent evidences of nature's grandeur that took my immediate attention from the beauties of the forest. It was the sight of a score of figures moving slowly about the meadow near the bank of the mighty river. Odd, grotesque shapes they were, unlike anything that I had ever seen upon Mars, and yet, at a distance, most manlike in appearance. The larger specimens appeared to be about ten or twelve feet in height when they stood erect, and to be proportioned as to torso and lower extremities precisely as is earthly man. Their arms, however, were very short, and from where I stood seemed as though fashioned much after the manner of an elephant's trunk, in that they moved in sinuous and snake-like undulations, as though entirely without bony structure, or if there were bones, it seemed that they must be vertebral in nature. As I watched them from behind the stem of a huge tree, one of the creatures moved slowly in my direction, 
engaged in the occupation that seemed to be the principal business of each of them, and which consisted in running their oddly-shaped hands over the surface of the sword, for what purpose I couldn't determine. As he approached quite close to me, I obtained an excellent view of him, and though I was later to become better acquainted with his kind, I may say that that single cursory examination of this awful travesty of nature would have proved quite sufficient to my desires had I been a free agent. The fastest flyer of the heliometic navy could not quickly enough have carried me far from this hideous creature. Its hairless body was a strange and ghoulish blue, except for a broad band of white which encircled its protruding single eye, an eye which was all dead white, pupil, iris, and ball. Its nose was a ragged, inflamed, circular hole in the center of its blank face, a hole that resembled more closely nothing that I could think of other than a fresh bullet wound which has not yet commenced to bleed. Below this repulsive orifice, the face was quite blank to the chin, for the thing had no mouth that I could discover. The head, with the exception of the face, was covered by a tangled mass of jet-black hair some eight or ten inches in length. Each hair was about the bigness of a large angleworm, and as the thing moved the muscles of its scalp, this awful head-covering seemed to writhe and wriggle and crawl about the fearsome face, as though indeed each separate hair was endowed with independent life. The body and the legs were as symmetrically human as nature could have fashioned them, and the feet too were human in shape, but of monstrous proportions. From heel to toe they were fully three feet long, and very flat and very broad. As it came quite close to me, I discovered that its strange movements, running its odd hands over the surface of the turf, were the result of its peculiar method of feeding, which consists in cropping off the tender vegetation with its razor-like talons, and sucking it up from its two mouths, which lie one in the palm of each hand, through its arm-like throats. In addition to the features which I have already described, the beast was equipped with a massive tail about six feet in length, quite round where it joined the body, but tapering to a flat, thin blade toward the end, which trailed at right angles to the ground. By far the most remarkable feature of this most remarkable creature, however, were the two tiny replicas of it, each about six inches in length, which dangled one on either side, from its armpits. They were suspended by a small stem which seemed to grow from the exact tops of their heads to where it connected them with the body of the adult. Whether they were the young or merely portions of a composite creature, I didn't know. As I had been scrutinizing this weird monstrosity, the balance of the herd had fed quite close to me, and I now saw that while many had the smaller specimens dangling from them, not all were thus equipped, and I further noticed that the little ones varied in size from what appeared to be but tiny unopened buds an inch in diameter through various stages of development to the full-fledged and perfectly formed creatures of ten to twelve inches in length. Feeding with the herd were many of the little fellows, not much larger than those which remained attached to their parents, and from the young of that size the herd graded up to the immense adults. Fearsome-looking as they were, I didn't know whether to fear them or not, for they did not seem to be particularly well equipped for fighting, and I was on the point of stepping from my hiding place and revealing myself to them to note the effect upon them from the sight of a man, when my rash resolve was, fortunately for me, nipped in the bud by a strange shrieking wail which seemed to come from the direction of the bluffs at my right. Naked and unarmed as I was, my end would have been both speedy and horrible at the hands of these cruel creatures had I had time to put my resolve into execution. 
but at the moment of the shriek, each member of the herd turned in the direction from which the sound seemed to come, and at the same instant, every particular snake-like hair upon their heads rose stiffly perpendicular, as if each had been a sentient organism, looking or listening for the source or meaning of the wail. And indeed, the latter proved to be the truth, for this strange growth upon the craniums of the plant men of Barsoom represents the thousand ears of these hideous creatures, the last remnant of the strange race which sprang from the original tree of life. Instantly, every eye turned toward one member of the herd, a large fellow who evidently was the leader. A strange purring sound issued from the mouth in the palm of one of his hands, and at the same time he started rapidly toward the bluff, followed by the entire herd. Their speed and method of locomotion were both remarkable, springing as they did in great leaps of twenty or thirty feet, much after the manner of a kangaroo. They were rapidly disappearing when it occurred to me to follow them, and so, hurling caution to the wind, I sprang across the meadow in their wake, with leaps and bounds even more prodigious than their own, for the muscles of an athletic earthman produce remarkable results when pitted against the lesser gravity and air pressure of Mars. Their way led directly towards the apparent source of the river, at the base of the cliffs, and as I neared this point I found the meadow dotted with huge boulders that the ravages of time had evidently dislodged from the towering crags above. For this reason I came quite close to the cause of the disturbance before the scene broke upon my horrified gaze. As I topped a great boulder I saw the herd of plant men surrounding a little group of perhaps five or six green men and women of Barsoom. That I was indeed upon Mars, I now had no doubt, for here were members of the wild hordes that people the dead sea-bottoms and deserted cities of that dying planet. Here were the great males towering in all the majesty of their imposing height. Here were the gleaming white tusks protruding from their massive lower jaws to a point near the center of their foreheads. The laterally placed protruding eyes with which they could look forward and backward or to either side without turning their heads. Here the strange antenna-like ears rising from the tops of their foreheads and the additional pair of arms extending from midway between the shoulders and the hips. Even without the glossy green hide and the metal ornaments which denoted the tribes to which they belonged, I would have known them on the instant for what they were, for where else in all the universe is their like duplicated? There were two men and four females in the party, and their ornaments denoted them as members of different hordes, a fact which tended to puzzle me infinitely since the various hordes of green men of Barsoom are eternally at deadly war with one another, and never, except on that single historic instance when the great Tars Tarkas of Thark gathered a hundred and fifty thousand green warriors from several hordes to march upon the doomed city of Zodanga to rescue Dejah Thoris, Princess of Helium, from the clutches of Thongkosis, had I seen green Martians of different hordes associated in other than mortal combat. But now they stood back to back, facing in wide-eyed amazement the very evidently hostile demonstrations of a common enemy. Both men and women were armed with long swords and daggers, but no firearms were in evidence, else it had been short shrift for the gruesome plant men of Barsoom. Presently, the leader of the plant men charged the little party, and his method of attack was as remarkable as it was effective, and by its very strangeness was the more potent, since, in the science of the green warriors, there was no defense for this singular manner of attack, the lack of which, it was soon evident to me, they were as unfamiliar with as they were with the monstrosities which confronted them. The plant man charged within a dozen feet of the party, and then, with a bound, rose as though to pass directly over their heads, 
His powerful tail was raised high to one side, and as he passed close above them, he brought it down in one terrific sweep that crushed a green warrior's skull as though it had been an eggshell. The balance of the frightful herd was now circling rapidly and with bewildering speed about the little knot of victims. Their prodigious bounds and the shrill, screeching purr of their uncanny mouths were well calculated to confuse and terrorize their prey, so that, as two of them leaped simultaneously from either side, the mighty sweep of those awful tails met with no resistance, and two more green Martians went down to an ignoble death. There were now but one warrior and two females left, and it seemed that it could be but a matter of seconds ere these also lay dead upon the scarlet sword. But as two more of the plant men charged, the warrior, who was now prepared by the experiences of the past few minutes, swung his mighty longsword aloft and met the hurtling bulk with a clean cut that clove one of the plant men from chin to groin. The other, however, dealt a single blow with his cruel tail that laid both of the female's crushed corpses upon the ground. As the green warrior saw the last of his companions go down, and at the same time perceived that the entire herd was charging him in a body, he rushed boldly to meet them, swinging his longsword in the terrific manner that I had so often seen the men of his kind wield it in their ferocious and almost continual warfare among their own race. Cutting and hewing to right and left, he laid an open path straight through the advancing plant man, and then commenced a mad race for the forest, in the shelter of which he evidently hoped that he might find a haven of refuge. He had turned for that portion of the forest which abutted on the cliffs, and thus the mad race was taking the entire party farther and farther from the boulder where I lay concealed. As I had watched the noble fight which the great warrior had put up against such enormous odds, my heart had swelled with admiration for him, and acting as I am wont to do, more upon impulse than after mature deliberation, I instantly sprang from my sheltering rock and bounded quickly toward the bodies of the dead green Martians, a well-defined plan of action already formed. Half a dozen great leaps brought me to the spot, and another instant saw me again in my stride in quick pursuit of the hideous monsters that were rapidly gaining on the fleeing warrior. But this time, I grasped a mighty longsword in my hand, and in my heart was the old bloodlust of the fighting man, and a red mist swam before my eyes, and I felt my lips respond to my heart in the old smile that has ever mocked me in the midst of the joy of battle. Swift as I was, I was none too soon, for the green warrior had been overtaken ere he had made half the distance to the forest, and now he stood with his back to a boulder, while the herd, temporarily balked, hissed and screeched about him. With their single eyes in the center of their heads, and every eye turned upon their prey, they did not note my soundless approach, so that I was upon them with my great longsword, and four of them lay dead, ere they knew that I was among them. For an instant they recoiled before my terrific onslaught, and in that instant the green warrior rose to the occasion, and, springing to my side, laid to the right and left of him, as I had never seen but one other warrior do, with great circling strokes that formed a figurate about him, and that never stopped until none stood living to oppose him, his keen blade passing through flesh and bone and metal, as though each had been alike thin air. As we bent to the slaughter, far above us rose that shrill, weird cry that I had heard once before, and which had called the herd to the attack upon their victims. Again and again it rose, but we were too much engaged with the fierce and powerful creatures about us to attempt to search out even with our eyes the author of those horrid notes. Great tails lashed in frenzied anger about us, 
razor-like talons cut our limbs and bodies, and a green and sticky syrup, such as oozes from a crushed caterpillar, smeared us from head to foot, for every cut and thrust of our longswords brought spurts of this stuff upon us from the severed arteries of the plantman, through which it courses in its sluggish vicinity in lieu of blood. Once I felt the great weight of one of the monsters upon my back, and his keen talons sank into my flesh, I experienced the frightful sensation of moist lips sucking lifeblood from the wounds to which the claws still clung. I was very much engaged with the ferocious fellow who was endeavoring to reach my throat from in front, while two more, one on either side, were lashing viciously at me with their tails. The green warrior was much put to it to hold his own, and I felt that the unequal struggle could last but a moment longer when the huge fellow discovered my plight, and tearing himself from those that surrounded him, he raked the assailant from my back with a single sweep of his blade, and thus relieved I had little difficulty with the others. Once together, we stood almost back to back against the great boulder, and thus the creatures were prevented from soaring above us to deliver their deadly blows, as we were easily their match while they remained upon the ground. We were making great headway in dispatching what remained of them, when our attention was again attracted by the shrill wail of the collar above our heads. This time I glanced up, and far above us, upon a little natural balcony on the face of the cliff, stood a strange figure of a man, shrieking out his shrill signal. The while he waved one hand in the direction of the river's mouth, as though beckoning to someone there, and with the other pointed and gesticulated toward us. A glance in the direction toward which he was looking was sufficient to apprise me of his aims, and at the same time to fill me with a dread of dire apprehension. For, streaming in from all directions across the meadow, from out of the forest, and from the far distance of the flat land across the river, I could see converging upon us a hundred different lines of wildly leaping creatures, such as we were now engaged with, and with them some strange new monsters, which ran with great swiftness, now erect and now upon all fours. "'It will be a great death,' I said to my companion. "'Look!' As he shot a quick glance in the direction I indicated, he smiled. "'We may at least die fighting, and as great warriors should, John Carter,' he replied. We had just finished the last of our immediate antagonists as he spoke, and I turned in surprised wonderment at the sound of my name. And there, before my astonished eyes, I beheld the greatest of the green men of Barsoom, their shrewdest statesman, their mightiest general, my great and good friend, Tars Tarkis, Jeddak of Thark. Chapter 2 A Forest Battle Tars Tarkis and I found no time for an exchange of experiences as we stood there before the great boulder surrounded by the corpses of our grotesque assailants, for from all directions down the broad valley was streaming a perfect torrent of terrifying creatures in response to the weird call of the strange figure far above us. "'Come!' cried Tars Tarkis. "'We must make for the cliffs. There lies our only hope of even temporary escape. There we may find a cave or a narrow ledge which two may defend forever against this motley unarmed horde.' Together we raced across the Scarlet Sword, I timing my speed that I might not outdistance my slower companion. We had, perhaps, three hundred yards to cover between our boulder and the cliffs, and then to search out a suitable shelter for our stand against the terrifying things that were pursuing us. They were rapidly overhauling us, when Tars Targus cried to me to hasten ahead and discover, if possible, the sanctuary we sought. 
The suggestion was a good one, for thus many valuable minutes might be saved to us, and throwing every ounce of my earthly muscles into the effort, I cleared the remaining distance between myself and the cliffs in great leaps and bounds that put me at their base in a moment. The cliffs rose perpendicular directly from the almost level sward of the valley. There was no accumulation of fallen debris, forming a more or less rough ascent to them, as is the case with nearly all other cliffs I have ever seen. The scattered boulders that had fallen from above, and lay upon or partly buried in the turf, were the only indication that any disintegration of the massive, towering pile of rocks ever had taken place. My first cursory inspection of the face of the cliffs filled my heart with forebodings, since nowhere could I discern, except where the weird herald stood, still shrieking his shrill summons, the faintest indication of even a bare foothold upon the lofty escarpment. To my right, the bottom of the cliff was lost in the dense foliage of the forest, which terminated at its very foot, rearing its gorgeous foliage fully a thousand feet against its stern and forbidding neighbor. To the left, the cliff ran, apparently unbroken, across the head of the broad valley, to be lost in the outlines of what appeared to be a range of mighty mountains that skirted and confined the valley in every direction. Perhaps a thousand feet from me, the river broke, as it seemed, directly from the base of the cliffs, and as there seemed not the remotest chance for escape in that direction, I turned my attention again toward the forest. The cliffs towered above me a good five thousand feet. The sun was not quite upon them, and they loomed a dull yellow in their own shade. Here and there, they were broken with streaks and patches of dusky red, green, and occasional areas of white quartz. Altogether, they were very beautiful, but I fear that I did not regard them with a particularly appreciative eye on this, my first inspection of them. Just then, I was absorbed in them only as a medium of escape, and so, as my gaze ran quickly, time and again, over their vast expanse in search of some cranny or crevice, I came suddenly to loathe them, as the prisoner must loathe the cruel and impregnable walls of his dungeon." Tars Tarkas was approaching me rapidly, and still more rapidly came the awful horde at his heels. It seemed the forest now or nothing, and I was just on the point of motioning Tars Tarkas to follow me in that direction when the sun passed the cliff's zenith, and as the bright rays touched the dull surface, it burst out into a million scintillant lights of burnished gold, of flaming red, of soft greens and gleaming whites, a more gorgeous and inspiring spectacle human eye has never rested upon. The face of the entire cliff was, as latter inspection conclusively proved, so shot with veins and patches of solid gold as to quite present the appearance of a solid wall of that precious metal, except where it was broken by outcroppings of ruby, emerald, and diamond boulders, a faint and alluring indication of the vast and unguessable riches which lay deeply buried behind the magnificent surface. But what caught my most interested attention at the moment that the sun's rays set the cliff's face a shimmer was the several black spots which now appeared quite plainly in evidence, high across the gorgeous wall, close to the forest top, and extending apparently below and behind the branches. Almost immediately, I recognized them for what they were, the dark openings of caves entering the solid walls, possible avenues of escape or temporary shelter, could we but reach them. There was but a single way, and that led through the mighty towering trees upon our right, that I could scale them, I knew full well, but Tars Tarkas, with his mighty bulk and enormous weight, would find it a task possibly quite beyond his prowess or his skill, for Martians are at best but poor climbers. 
Upon the entire surface of that ancient planet, I never before had seen a hill or mountain that exceeded 4,000 feet in height above the Dead Sea bottoms, and as the ascent was usually gradual, nearly to their summits they presented but few opportunities for the practice of climbing. Nor would the Martians have embraced even such opportunities as might present themselves, for they could always find a circuitous route about the base of any eminence, and these roads they preferred, and followed in preference to the shorter but more arduous ways. However, there was nothing else to consider than an attempt to scale the trees contiguous to the cliffs in an effort to reach the caves above. The thought grasped the possibilities and the difficulties of the plan at once, but there was no alternative, and so we set out rapidly for the trees nearest the cliff. Our relentless pursuers were now close to us, so close that it seemed that it would be an utter impossibility for the Jeddak of Thark to reach the forest in advance of them, nor was there any considerable will in the efforts that Tars Tarkas made, for the green men of Barsoom do not relish flight, nor ever before had I seen one fleeing from death in whatsoever form it might have confronted him. But that Tars Tarkas was the bravest of the brave, he had proven thousands of times, yes, tens of thousands, in countless mortal combats with men and beasts, and so I knew that there was another reason than fear of death behind his flight, as he knew that a greater power than pride or honor spurred me to escape these fierce destroyers. In my case, it was love, love of the divine Dejah Thoris, and the cause of the Thark's great and sudden love of life I could not fathom, for it is oftener that they seek death than life, these strange, cruel, loveless, unhappy people. At length, however, we reached the shadows of the forest, while right behind us sprang the swiftest of our pursuers, a giant plant-man with claws outreaching to fasten his blood-sucking mouths upon us. He was, I should say, a hundred yards in advance of his closest companion, and so I called to Tars Tarkas to ascend a great tree that brushed the cliff's face while I dispatched the fellow, thus giving the less agile Thark an opportunity to reach the higher branches before the entire horde should be upon us and every vestige of escape cut off. But I had reckoned without a just appreciation, either of the cunning of my immediate antagonist, or the swiftness with which his fellows were covering the distance which had separated them from me. As I raised my longsword to deal the creature his death thrust, it halted in its charge, and, as my sword cut harmlessly through the empty air, the great tail of the thing swept with the power of a grizzly's arm across the sword, and carried me bodily from my feet to the ground. In an instant, the brute was upon me. But ere it could fasten its hideous mouths into my breast and throat, I grasped a writhing tentacle in either hand. The plant man was well muscled, heavy, and powerful, but my earthly sinews and greater agility, in conjunction with the deadly stranglehold I had upon him, would have given me, I think, an eventual victory, had we had time to discuss the merits of our relative prowess uninterrupted. But as we strained and struggled about the tree into which Tars Tarkas was clambering with infinite difficulty, I suddenly caught a glimpse over the shoulder of my antagonist of the great swarm of pursuers that were now fairly upon me. Now, at last, I saw the nature of the other monsters who had come with the plant men in response to the weird calling of the man upon the cliff's face. They were the most dreaded of Martian creatures, great white apes of Barsoom. My former experiences upon Mars had familiarized me thoroughly with them and their methods, and I may say that of all the fearsome and terrible, weird and grotesque inhabitants of that strange world, it is the white apes that come nearest to familiarizing me with the sensation of fear. I think that the cause of this feeling which these apes engender within me is due to their remarkable resemblance in form to our Earthmen, 
which gives them a human appearance that is most uncanny when coupled with their enormous size. They stand fifteen feet in height and walk erect upon their hind feet. Like the green Martians, they have an intermediary set of arms midway between their upper and lower limbs. Their eyes are very close-set, but do not protrude as do those of the green men of Mars. Their ears are high-set, but more laterally located than those of the green men's, while their snout and teeth are much like those of our African gorilla. Upon their heads grows an enormous shock of bristly hair. It was into the eyes of such as these, and the terrible plant men, that I gazed above the shoulder of my foe, and then, in a mighty wave of snarling, snapping, screaming, purring rage, they swept over me. And of all the sounds that assailed my ears as I went down beneath them, to me the most hideous was the horrid purring of the plant men. Instantly, a score of cruel fangs and keen talons were sunk into my flesh. Cold, sucking lips fastened themselves upon my arteries. I struggled to free myself, and even though weighed down by these immense bodies, I succeeded in struggling to my feet, where, still grasping my longsword and shortening my grip upon it until I could use it as a dagger, I wrought such havoc among them that at one time I stood for an instant free. What it has taken minutes to write occurred in but a few seconds. But during that time, Tars Tarkas had seen my plight and had dropped from the lower branches, which he had reached with such infinite labor, and as I flung the last of my immediate antagonists from me, the great Thark leaped to my side, and again we fought, back to back, as we had done a hundred times before. Time and again, the ferocious apes sprang in to close with us, and time and again we beat them back with our swords. The great tails of the plantmen lashed with tremendous power about us as they charged from various directions or sprang with the agility of greyhounds above our heads. But every attack met a gleaming blade in sword hands that had been reputed for twenty years the best that Mars had ever known. For Tars Tarkas and John Carter were names that the fighting men of the world of warriors loved best to speak. But even the two best warriors in a world of fighters can avail not forever against overwhelming numbers of fierce and savage brutes that know not what defeat means until cold steel teaches their hearts no longer to beat. And so, step by step, we were forced back. At length, we stood against the giant tree that we had chosen for our ascent, and then, as charge after charge hurled its weight upon us, we gave back again and again, until we had been forced halfway round the huge base of the colossal trunk. Tars Tarkas was in the lead, and suddenly I heard a little cry of exultation from him. "'Here is shelter for one at least, John Carter,' he said, and glancing down, I saw an opening in the base of the tree, about three feet in diameter. "'In with you, Tars Tarkas,' I cried, but he would not go, saying that his bulk was too great for the little aperture, while I might slip in easily. "'We shall both die if we remain without John Carter. Here is a slight chance for one of us.' Take it, and you may live to avenge me. It is useless for me to attempt to worm my way into so small an opening with this horde of demons besetting us on all sides. Then we shall die together, Tars Tarkas, I replied, for I shall not go first. Let me defend the opening while you get in. Then my smaller statue will permit me to slip in with you before they can prevent. We were still fighting furiously as we talked in broken sentences, punctured with vicious cuts and thrusts at our swarming enemy. At length, he yielded, for it seemed the only way in which either of us might be saved from the ever-increasing numbers of our assailants, who were still swarming upon us from all directions across the broad valley. "'It was ever your way, John Carter, to think last of your own life,' he said. 
but still more your way to command the lives and actions of others, even to the greatest of Jeddaks who rule upon Barsoom. There was a grim smile upon his cruel, hard face, as he, the greatest Jeddak of them all, turned to obey the dictates of a creature of another world, a man whose stature was less than half his own. If you fail, John Carter, he said, know that the cruel and heartless Thark, to whom you taught the meaning of friendship, will come out to die beside you. As you will, my friend, I replied, but quickly now, head first, while I cover your retreat. He hesitated a little at that word, for never before in his whole life of continual strife had he turned his back upon aught than a dead or defeated enemy. Haste, Tarsarkis, I urged, or we shall both go down to profitless defeat. I cannot hold them forever alone. As he dropped to the ground to force his way into the tree, the whole howling pack of hideous devils hurled themselves upon me. To right and left flew my shimmering blade, now green with the sticky juice of plant man, now red with the crimson blood of a great white ape, but always flying from one opponent to another, hesitating but the barest fraction of a second to drink the lifeblood in the center of some savage heart. And thus I fought as I never had fought before, against such frightful odds that I cannot realize even now that human muscles could have withstood that awful onslaught, that terrific weight of hurtling tons of ferocious, battling flesh. With the fear that we would escape them, the creatures redoubled their efforts to pull me down, and though the ground about me was piled high with their dead and dying comrades, they succeeded at last in overwhelming me, and I went down beneath them for the second time that day, and once again felt those awful sucking lips against my flesh. But scarce had I fallen, ere I felt powerful hands grip my ankles, and in another second I was being drawn within the shelter of the tree's interior. For a moment, it was a tug-of-war between Tars Tarkas and a great plant-man, who clung tenaciously to my breast, but presently I got the point of my longsword beneath him, and with a mighty thrust, pierced his vitals. Torn and bleeding from many cruel wounds, I lay panting upon the ground within the hollow of the tree, while Tars Tarkas defended the opening from the furious mob without. For an hour, they howled about the tree, but after a few attempts to reach us, they confined their efforts to terrorizing shrieks and screams, to horrid growling on the part of the great white apes, and the fearsome and indescribable purring by the plant man. At length, all but a score, who had apparently been left to prevent our escape, had left us, and our adventure seemed destined to result in a siege, the only outcome of which could be our death by starvation. For even should we be able to slip out after dark, whither, in this unknown and hostile valley, could we hope to turn our steps to a possible escape? As the attacks of our enemies ceased, and our eyes became accustomed to the semi-darkness of the interior of our strange retreat, I took the opportunity to explore our shelter. The tree was hollow to an extent of about fifty feet in diameter, and from its flat, hard floor, I judged that it had often been used to domicile others before our occupancy. As I raised my eyes toward its roof to note the height, I saw far above me a faint glow of light. There was an opening above. If we could but reach it, we might still hope to make the shelter of the cliff caves. My eyes had now become quite used to the subdued light of the interior, and as I pursued my investigation, I presently came upon a rough ladder at the far side of the cave. Quickly, I mounted it, only to find that it connected at the top with the lower of a series of horizontal wooden bars that spanned the now narrow and shaft-like interior of the tree's stem. These bars were set one over another about three feet apart and formed a perfect ladder as far above me as I could see. 
Dropping to the floor once more, I detailed my discovery to Tars Tarkas, who suggested that I explore aloft as far as I could go in safety while he guarded the entrance against a possible attack. As I hastened above to explore the strange shaft, I found that the ladder of horizontal bars mounted always as far above me as my eyes could reach, and as I ascended, the light from above grew brighter and brighter. For fully five hundred feet, I continued to climb, until at length I reached the opening in the stem which admitted the light. It was about the same diameter as the entrance at the foot of the tree, and opened directly upon a large flat limb, the well-worn surface of which testified to its long-continued use as an avenue for some creature to and from his remarkable shaft. I did not venture out upon the limb for fear that I might be discovered and our retreat in this direction cut off, but instead hurried to retrace my steps to Tars Tarkas. I soon reached him, and presently we were both ascending the long ladder toward the opening above. Tars Tarkas went in advance, and as I reached the first of the horizontal bars, I drew the ladder up after me and handed it to him, and he carried it a hundred feet further aloft, where he wedged it safely between one of the bars and the side of the shaft. In like manner, I dislodged the lower bars as I passed them, so that we soon had the interior of the tree denuded of all possible means of ascent for a distance of a hundred feet from the base, thus precluding possible pursuit and attack from the rear. As we were to learn later, this precaution saved us from dire predicament, and was eventually the means of our salvation. When we reached the opening at the top, Tars Tarkas drew to one side, that I might pass out and investigate as, owing to my lesser weight and greater agility, I was better fitted for the perilous threading of this dizzy, hanging pathway. The limbs upon which I found myself ascended at a slight angle toward the cliff, and, as I followed it, I found that it terminated a few feet above a narrow ledge, which protruded from the cliff's face at the entrance to a narrow cave. As I approached the slightly more slender extremity of the branch, it bent beneath my weight, until, as I balanced perilously upon its outer tip, it swayed gently on a level with the ledge at a distance of a couple of feet. Five hundred feet below me lay the vivid scarlet carpet of the valley, Nearly five thousand feet above me towered the mighty gleaming face of the gorgeous cliffs. The cave that I faced was not one of those that I had seen from the ground, and which lay much higher, possibly a thousand feet. But so far as I might know, it was as good for our purpose as another, and so I returned to the tree for Tars Tarkas. Together we wormed our way along the waving pathways, but when we reached the end of the branch, we found that our combined weight so depressed the limb that the cave's mouth was now too far above us to be reached. We finally agreed that Tars Tarkas should run along the branch, leaving his longest leather harness strapped with me, and that when the limb had risen to a height that should permit me to enter the cave, I was to do so, and on Tars Tarkas' return, I could then lower the strap and haul him up to the safety of the ledge. This we did without mishap, and soon found ourselves together upon the verge of a dizzy little balcony with a magnificent view of the valley spreading out below us. As far as the eye could reach, gorgeous forest and crimson swords skirted a silent sea, and about all towered the brilliant monster guardian cliffs. Once we thought we discerned a gilded minaret gleaming in the sun amidst the waving tops of far-distant trees, but we soon abandoned the idea, in belief that it was but a hallucination, born of our great desire to discover the haunts of civilized men in this beautiful yet forbidding spot. Below us, upon the river's bank, the great white apes were devouring the last remnants of Tars Tarkas's former companions, 
while great herds of plantmen grazed in ever-widening circles about the sword, which they kept as close-clipped as the smoothest of lawns. Knowing that attack from the tree was now improbable, we determined to explore the cave, which we had every reason to believe was but a continuation of the path we had already traversed, leading the gods alone knew where, but quite evidently away from this valley of grim ferocity. As we advanced, we found a well-proportioned tunnel cut from the solid cliff. Its walls rose some twenty feet above the floor, which was about five feet in width. The roof was arched. We had no means of making a light, and so groped our way slowly into the ever-increasing darkness, Tars Tarkas keeping in touch with one wall while I felt along the other, while to prevent our wandering into diverging branches and becoming separated or lost in some intricate and labyrinth maze, we clasped hands. How far we traversed this tunnel in this manner, I do not know, but presently we came to an obstruction which blocked our further progress. It seemed more like a partition than a sudden ending of the cave, for it was constructed not of the material of the cliff, but of something which felt like very hard wood. Silently, I groped over its surface with my hands, and presently was rewarded by the feel of the button, which as commonly denotes a door on Mars, as does a doorknob on Earth. Gently pressing it, I had the satisfaction of feeling the door slowly give before me, and in another instant we were looking into a dimly lighted apartment, which, so far as we could see, was unoccupied. Without more ado, I swung the door wide open, and, followed by the huge thark, stepped into the chamber. As we stood for a moment in silence, gazing about the room, a slight noise behind caused me to turn quickly, when, to my astonishment, I saw the door close with a sharp click as though by an unseen hand. Instantly, I sprang toward it to wrench it open again, for something in the uncanny movement of the thing, and the tense and almost palpable silence of the chamber, seemed to portend a lurking evil lying behind in this rock-bound chamber within the bowels of the golden cliffs. My fingers clawed futilely at the unyielding portal, while my eyes sought in vain for a duplicate of the button which had given us ingress. And then, from unseen lips, a cruel and mocking peal of laughter rang through the desolate place. So I didn't know this, um, but I guess a lot of what Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote was actually written for uh, magazines, so they were like periodicals, so he would write one of these chapters and send it out on a, a regular basis to these magazines, so people would get the magazine, they'd read the chapter, and they'd have to get the next volume of the magazine in order to come back to, to read more. So he always does these great cliffhangers at the end of chapters, he's really a master of that, so it worked really good for, for a podcast too, so hopefully this got you intrigued and uh, super long episode here for today. I wanted to start off with a bang as we uh, get into this new book. Uh, again, I'm loving it so far. hope you guys are as well. Let me know if you uh, want to shoot me some messages via social media or email. All the contact information is in the show notes down below. Check that out. Um, and yeah, go to Another World Audiobooks. Get the get the full version of other audiobooks we've done. We've done a ton now. You can get Emma. Uh, that one should be available uh, I, it, sometimes it can take a while for the, the quality check on all the audio and stuff. So I guess it might not be available, but as soon as it is, uh, make sure to check that out. Uh, and, and yeah, thanks so much for supporting the show. Best way you can do that, though, is just by telling other people about the podcast. So who do you know who might enjoy a free audiobook? Go ahead and tell them about Another World. Get them hooked like you are. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week with more from uh, John Carter. Have a good one.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.